I think the trouble is a lot of people they get inspired and they watch they go to talks or they re watch TEDx talks or TED talks and things and they get inspired but there's a there's a moment where wow this I've got this urge to do something I've got this but what what is it and then spending some time at that point where it's hot and I, I always call it like when it's hot yeah Alex knows that I'll just write to him when it's hot I'll just be yeah, like yeah Jesus just just come to my head <laughs> what do you think <laughs> but it's really important sometimes to capture that because then it'll just get lost and it'll float away We have all been there. You glance down at your phone whilst going about your day to see another headline about that world issue which you care about. Something rises up in you, a new energy that demands action and positive change. But as quickly as this spark arrived, it dims and vanishes as you move through the rest of your day. Maybe you sometimes even wonder, what if I answered the call to action? My guests today, Isaac Kenyon and Alex Piero, are prime examples of individuals who have caught that moment of inspiration about a cause they care about and turned it into a positive and purposeful project that creates change. Isaac and Alex run Climate Explorers, a community interest company with the mission to highlight climate solutions, raise environmental awareness, and promote physical and mental well-being through eco-adventures in the great outdoors. In 2021, Isaac and Alex were joined by three others to form the Pedal for Parks expedition team and complete the world's first cycle over land and sea from Orkney at the northern coast of Scotland all the way down the UK to the Isles of Scilly. Being frustrated with the constant negative headlines surrounding climate issues in the mainstream media, the team wanted to explore positive climate solutions that offer some hope by highlighting some of the great work going on in the UK to address climate change. On their adventure over land and sea, they interviewed 25 different companies, organisations and non-profits, all working so hard on ecological conservation, local community action and sustainability projects. They also raised £5,000 for their main charity partner, the National Parks Protectors Fund, a dedicated fund for vital nature conservation projects across the UK's 15 national parks. Their adventure also enabled them to shine a spotlight on the great work national parks are doing to preserve and regenerate wild green spaces. On top of all this, they even worked with a film crew to create a brilliant documentary chronicling the journey called 14 Days South Over Sea and Land and they were subsequently invited to speak at the COP26 conference in Glasgow in 2021, sharing their learnings from the Pedal for Parks project. Their journey is a welcome breath of fresh air amongst the barrage of alarming headlines that are becoming more and more regular as we continue into our climate and ecological crisis. They have an infectious passion for projects that create positive sustainability change, and I hope that you can feel this energy for yourself from the episode and nurture it so that it grows in your own life. Sending good energy to you all and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Peace.
Alex and Isaac, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's great to see you. Thanks. Uh, how are you doing? Very good. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting us on. Yeah, cheers, Tom. We're really excited to share our adventure and our, and our learnings with you tonight. So thank you. No problem. Well, uh, in lining up for the interview today, I had the really lovely opportunity at, at lunch today of just like, watching through the film that you've uh, been a part of and uh, been a real driving force in. And uh, I, what I really appreciated was yeah, we, hear, we have a lot of headlines nowadays about the sort of negativity around, you know, like doom and gloom of climate crisis and ecological collapse and stuff like that. And it's not that we should not really listen to those things. So I think it's important to hear them, but it was really refreshing to just spend a half an hour looking at a solutions focused media piece um, with some people who had some really good intentions behind it. So I just want to like extend my appreciation to you both for the good energy that you're putting out there. Um, oh. Has it been a nice experience to kind of go through that process and put out that message? Oh yeah, it's been really lifting for all, all of us involved. Um, that, that, that process of finding something that provides hope is, is so much better for people's physical mental health, including myself and Alex will probably agree with me. It's been such a rewarding process and uh, we've only just got started really. And we realise there's a lot more to find and a lot more to do. So we're very excited for the future too. Yeah, there's so many projects out there, you know, there's big ones, there's very small grassroots local projects, so many passionate people like dedicating all their time, all their efforts to this. And we just feel they deserve just a bigger voice and they deserve more funding. So we're doing our little bit to try and help that as well. And it's been really rewarding, met some really inspirational people, really, really brilliant stuff. Yeah. One of the things I really appreciated that you highlighted in the film, actually, on that point of like grassroots projects was the importance of not relying on, you know, big government bodies or big corporations to create the change that we want to see. It's about having them, but also having every layer on the way down to the grassroots, all taking action together and doing it in collaboration. So it's not me looking at someone else waiting for them to get started. It's like, let's all get started in whatever you know, if you work in a big company, like let's make change there. If you work in an eco community, let's make change there. Like it's all about doing what you can. Yeah, it's really incredible. The amount of people talk from a top, they talk about a top down approach or bottom up approach, but no one ever discusses of a top and bottom together approach. Mm. And <laughs> I, I think this is so like big and so many people are impacted and so much of the world is impacted by this, that actually it requires everyone top bottom middle whatever just as you just said all the layers yeah yeah i can't agree more um yeah with the speed that we need to move on this stuff uh, and this sort of like radical transformation that like we uh, i think we all need to take um some level of responsibility it doesn't need to be daunting but um i mean i think your film shows it can be really exciting and interesting you know looking at like different ways of viewing the world and i mean <laughs> There were some more sort of like tech focused things, um, but there were also there was like the I think it was like a forest school you went to. Um, mm -hmm. And that just shows like, you know, you can get kids involved and have it as like a sort of creative, dynamic, really enjoyable part of life. Actually have it add to your life rather than having it as a kind of bolt on weight that we all have to carry around, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, there's there's yeah, go for it, Isaac. I was just going to say uh, the film is called 14 Days South Over Sea and Land. Um, and it was filmed by Skyrise Productions and Pedal for Parks. Just in case anyone's like, what is this film? 
No, th yeah, thanks for the details. Uh, I'll yeah. make sure to put a link in the description um, for the podcast. And I, I really recommend everyone go and have a look, especially in these days of lots of negative news. It's uh, a nice like, positive injection into your day. Um, but yeah, it'd be great actually now we're sort of starting at the uh at the beginning and taking a bird's eye view of like the film and the uh, great accomplishment of doing the the sea and land journey from uh the, from the whole length of the uk um from from uh sorry remind me it was orkney islands orkney yes. islands all the way down to the isles of Scilly over the yeah. uk yeah, yeah 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 incredible yeah do you mind sort of like providing a bit of backstory to how this all came about and and the, the project in itself and like you know what the sort of main the drive for it was yeah sure uh, Alex and I we got together for a little social after work um, a couple of years back and um, had an idea of let's do a challenge together like um, cycling I was going to cycle the UK and I basically said do you want to join and uh, Alex was like yeah let's do it and then as we got talking more and more we realized that we had a lot of passion for the environment and changing things um, in terms of increasing green spaces because it was really important for both of us and then we started to make kind of a little impact campaign that went along with with the cycle and then suddenly it kind of grew and grew and grew and we decided to have locations of start and end being on islands because that was very interesting because in these islands there are sustainable communities circular economies interesting innovation in climate change space renewable energies up in um, Orkneys and then down in uh, Isles of Scilly, they have a really good organic farming sustainable community. And it would be quite interesting to try and see if a lot of this stuff could be scaled up across the UK. Um, so yeah, we kind of extended um, the traditional cycle from uh, Land's End to John O'Groats that we originally were going to do. And we, we did it from John O'Groats to Land's End and then extended it again to include the islands. Um, so yeah, that's how it kind of, in the inception was and it it really came down to a strong cause of the outdoors and nature and green spaces was so important for both of our mental health we both have mental health um pasts and we we kind of use the outdoors quite quite effectively to help us um and we think that the way we're going with climate change is not only the fact that the you know co2 um emissions are, are rising because of fossil fuel exploration but also the fact that we are taking away green spaces from communities and I couldn't imagine a life without being able to escape <laughs> into, a, into an outdoor space. So um, we started an impact campaign and uh, to highlight sort of regeneration and climate solutions from this. Mm. Yeah, something from, from the film as well. I think it was, um, yeah, in the Orkney Islands, um, it might have been yourself um, who, who was talking about a small little woodland um, that was mm -hmm. on the islands and the rest of the islands were they'd, they'd been deforested for uh, agricultural work and you were just saying how striking it was to have somewhere where, where you know like when you think of that place in the world it, it it strikes you as a very wild place but actually like so much of our land in the UK now has been transferred to transformed sorry to to serve purposes for us so lots of agricultural land and lots of it has been urbanized um, and we we have just lost an incredible amount of our wild spaces and the wild spaces we do have left are so critical for our resilience our emotional re resilience our mental health resilience um, and as I think that these increasing pressures of you know 
climate change and um, ecological issues, they might you know, go up a, a notch or two. I think it's important, even more important to have those spaces for us to be able to sort of detune from everything. And it's great to hear that you've also had personal uh, sort of personal benefits from those during your journeys too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've both, you know, had some mental health issues in the past. Isaac's, you know, you can talk about himself. It's been more anxiety kind of issues. On my side, it's been uh, depression uh, yeah. a few years back. And it got, you know, so bad that I had to stay in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, and that was just before we started the project with Isaac, actually. That was kind of uh, after that, I felt I had to kind of change, do some big changes in my life and um, mm. work on a big campaign, get a lot more purpose. And the outdoors is always say it serves as a place to reconnect, balance, you know, balance uh, the kind of the working lifestyle and even the university lifestyle and the, all the time we spend indoors. So mm. for us, yeah, it was just... Um, it's where we go. Like we you know, we we talk to each other pretty much every day with Isaac, and it's always like, oh, "Have you been out today? Like, have you been out running or cycling or whatever?" Like, we always know we're we're outdoors pretty much every day, at least a little bit, because yeah, like one day inside is just <laughs> I feel like I go mad after that whole day. So during lockdown, <laughs> that was just yeah. When we weren't allowed to go out much, that was just crazy because, and even my friends, you know, just normal people as well, we never really thought about the outdoors much themselves. They really noticed how just how claustrophobic it got staying in a flat all day or just you know in, in the same like four walls all the time working from home so mm. um yeah at least it's been it's made a lot of people realize the last few years just how important the outdoors are and that we can't just take them for granted they are well protected in the uk there's a lot you know green belts green land but even some of that is being encroached on now because we just don't have the space anymore for for housing and for just more infrastructure so it's even more critical now with the climate crisis and everything else that's going on that we, yeah, just increase the amount of work on increasing the amount of outdoor space we have. Um, innovating, yeah. Be, being yeah. inno innovating and new ways of building, new ways of living, like maybe the society can just change kind of its, its way of living or instead of us and nature, us with nature, like there's kind of a versus mm. at the moment. Mm. And maybe we need to have nature within our cities, within our towns, so that everything can kind of coexist. Because at the moment, it seems to be us winning. And we know we're going to win, but in the end, we will lose. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we can yeah. win now for a bit, and it's great, or we can all win together, <laughs> us and the planet. So uh, <laughs> There was an interesting eco-village we went to in Scotland uh, called Finhorn, and over there they have houses that kind of back out onto just instead of gardens that are kind of you know man-made and nurtured like pruned and made to look exactly how you want it they kind of just back out onto communal space which is basically just the countryside like uh, and you know and the beach like they just they they've built their houses in a very sustainable way and they're made of wood and they have great you know they produce their own energy and they have various other initiatives going on to have as low an environmental impact as possible and it was interesting to see how, you know, this is our garden. Like, this, we don't need to put fences up and say, this is my bit of space and it, no one else can go in without me saying so. But the people we met there were a lot more connected with nature, like, as a whole. That there's plants in all mm. around, you know, they're kind of, they haven't changed the landscape too much where they live. So that was really cool. Uh, and another place, time we discussed, yeah, this connection between nature and people. There's, like, two camps, like, people who think we should 
dominate nature and kind of the planet is there to serve us. And then there's kind of the other camp that's more like, well, no, we're part of nature, so we should live in kind of a symbiotic way with it. Mm-hmm. And it was quite interesting to see like the, you know, there's there's good points on both sides, actually, because you do need some pragmatism, some realism as well. Uh, but it was interesting to see like agriculture versus rewilding projects and reintroducing wild animals. And obviously, you know, uh, some some don't want that because it means they can't farm as much, but then maybe there's di- there's different ways of farming as well, where you can have more wild wild plants and wild animals in there that actually does help. So there's mm-hmm. a type of farming, you know, called um, agroforestry that we found out quite a bit about where you don't just stick to monoculture, to one type of crop. You kind of build, or you farm multiple types of crops. So you're resilient. So if one year there's a bad condition for a single crop, you can grow other crops. It also helps to, uh, with the soil to re- you know, put different nutrients inside it, not to saturate it, draw, that's it, Um, the the soil. And it also means, you know, you can have crops growing like under trees. So you can have multiple layers going on, exactly. Mm, Which means you just, it's just a much healthier environment for nature as well. You can have more animals going into these environments as well. Uh, And it's just just much healthier for the soil. Uh, and, And actually it leads to like increased crop yield. And financially, it means if you have a bad year, you can sell the other crops. Like you can always just be more flexible, more resilient as well. So very interesting. Not something that's done too much yet, but there's some programs coming out. And it's just uh, like a one to keep an eye on, basically. Yeah. And also, uh, we didn't do any interviews, but we learned quite a bit about vertical farming um, in cities, for example, and where areas where you can control exactly the conditions that plants grow in. So you're guaranteed mm. like plants growing all year round, all the time. And there's very advanced techniques now where you don't need much water usage. You can use very uh, energy efficient LEDs to control the light that the plants get. So it's very exciting to see, you know, a lot of science being put into this as well. Um, yeah. And just different ways. We'll need every way, like <laughs> plenty of innovations to get us through this. So really, really exciting. Yeah, absolutely, Alex. And, and you you brought up a really important point there about the these kind of like different attitudes from different sections of the population regarding like where we sit in relation to nature. I mean, even having the word nature as a kind of external thing to ourselves kind of says where we sit as a society where like, you know, nature is somewhere, you know, where you go and uh, have a nice walk or something. And then when you come home, like nature's gone, you know, that, that's it. Um, but but actually you can well in my belief is that you, you can't separate yourself from nature um, and it's going to be an interesting journey you know creating our sort of new sustainable world with people fr- from all these different viewpoints of maybe seeing themselves as like separate from nature and it can can we integrate that with the people who almost on a sort of spiritual basis, see themselves as uh, t- part of a flowing ecosystem and an exchange of you know, energy and nutrients between everything. Uh, and it'd be interesting to hear actually where you guys sit on that spectrum, especially after your, your journey that you've had um, on your cycle. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly comes down to belief and religion in a sense of what is in an individual's belief here. Do they believe that we are different to the rest of the world? and it should be a separation or do they believe that we are part of the rest of the world and it should be coexistent i think there's a there's just two 
and then there's a bit of spectrum between but those seem to be the the two that I, I see at the moment um i think that it's been quite quite a good question from you to to say where do we sit on that spectrum uh, i would say before the um journey and the exploration of, of of what we've been doing here with this film project i was probably sitting more in the middle of such where i i believe there was a bit of separation yes i you know i will have my own land and this would be my space and there's a bit of isolation and, and separation there between me and nature and i go into nature's realm when i want to and then i come out and then I, i'm in my own world and then since during the process of you know, talking to lots of different people, seeing these projects for myself, seeing nature for myself a bit more and really deep thinking, I've probably swayed more into coexistence. I'd like to coexist with nature. You know, when I have the funds, of course, uh, a lot of it does come down to it. I would like to have a bit more of a sustainable plot where I live, where I can kind of, a bit like the eco village or such, that sort of vibe. But the problem at the moment is it's expensive to to do that and get land like this. Um, and um, I'm hoping as I as I get older, I can I can afford and pick up some skills and and also maybe it will get cheaper to do. Yeah, I would say kind of similar to Isaac, really. I'd always kind of I, I would say I'd seen myself as part of nature, but not really acted that way. So, you know, I wouldn't really go out of my way to destroy nature or anything but I never really did anything to kind of help improve it like I don't garden I don't um like live in nature you know I still live in a city um so I'm not 100% connected I would say since a trip I've definitely got a lot more ambition to help work on nature and like preserving nature so definitely want to you know when I when I'm moved to my own place grow my own food is a big one um when you see all the benefits that provides and just um, get my hands probably a bit dirtier, like <laughs> do some some planting, do some rewilding, those kind of things. I want to try and do in the next in the next few years. Um, and it's interesting. It's all it's also about finding the time and the right places to do this. And you know, there's a lot a lot pretty much all land is controlled, so you can't just go somewhere and say I want to do this and and do it. So trying to figure out the a way to live in a bit of a closer relationship with nature so yeah it's it's kind of uh, involves a lot of rethink about how we just do every day basically like this it'll be also giving up some comforts but maybe finding other ones mm. it's, it's it's interesting in cities it's quite rare to be able to do rewilding and and things like that in the countryside like like where some places where i live it, you know i can get out in community action groups and do, and do these things but It'd be nice to have a, my own sort of area where I'm living and coexisting. Yeah, yeah. And, and like bringing it back to the mental health points you were making earlier. It, I mean, it's amazing if someone can get out to a local like national park or green space and like go for a hike or go for a cycle or whatever. But and there'd always be a place for that. But imagine, you know, if we had many of us had day to day lives where connecting with nature was a necessity for growing your own food you know being in the garden and like you naturally you wouldn't have to carve out time because it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go and do some gardening for an hour and as I'm gardening I'm putting my hands in the earth I'm looking around I'm seeing the trees like I'm already automatically connecting into it and like engineering our society in that way could be really powerful 
Yeah, I'd agree yeah. with that. And a way of um, locally sourced food. Mm. Um, that that could be a, a good widespread thing that we could do in the UK. Yeah. It's quite there's quite a lot of luxury food that we have um, that we're quite attached to that comes from abroad and um, has huge sustainable uh, unsustainable footprints you know co2 mm. footprints and also unethical sometimes uh, the way it's produced but we have probably enough land and enough people and resources to actually probably grow our own food it may not be as exciting having all these flavors from everywhere in the world but there's certainly a lot of food and produce that we could live on um, and that's I guess it comes down to that sort of how far are we willing to sacrifice some of these artificial comforts that we've been making over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, mm. we've made, we've made it so possible in Western world to get food from all over the world. It's that's a luxury. That's not a necessity. There is food that we can grow here and we can feed ourselves from our own land. It's very possible. We've been doing it before. It's the fact that we've decided let's have all these cool things, <laughs> these extra nutrients and things that we wouldn't get. Um, yeah, it's an interesting debate and discussion. Yeah, Very interesting. Uh, yeah, the new like the new indoor farming methods and just general climate changing as well means that we can grow things here that weren't grown before. So mm. there's a, there's so much potential. Like you can draw, you can grow all kinds of berries, for example, indoors. You know. Uh, there's, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that we don't even know that we can do yet. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, like, kind of going back to basics a little bit as well, if you had to kind of farm your own food, that kind of thing. But I think to be successful, you have to do it in a way where, yeah, it's like you said, it doesn't, it's not a chore and it doesn't carve out a huge amount of time because otherwise you wouldn't be able to do other things, you know, like <laughs> your job or just like everything that we've been able to achieve since we've had agriculture and not all having to spend our time finding food all day so be, it'd be interesting I think for me it's quite system big system change like in terms of working hours maybe and people are living so far from their jobs all of those things that take up a lot of time and you know that's that's coming as well you see that especially like in Nordic countries like slightly more left-leaning countries as well um, a bit more progressive maybe they they're starting to do four-day work weeks, for example, and people are starting to get involved in their communities a lot more. They have not only the time, but also the energy to do it, which is also mm. a big factor. And kind of, yeah, growing those communities again. So all, all very interesting. So hopefully this can be accelerated as well. But I think it will go. I'm quite an optimistic person, so I think it's coming. But <laughs> who knows at what speed, really? That's, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a really good point in that in terms of like the really radical behavior change that needs to happen in our society, like to, to rely on people doing that from the sort of self-generated energy that they have, like some people will go there sooner or later, but if we sort of create the, the right soil for people to grow in, you know, if we encourage people to do, do those right things by, if we have a reduced work week, giving more people people more time to get out into nature or, you know, go to their allotment or whatever, or, um, yeah, do something that is sort of more regenerative and nourishing, you know, maybe, maybe that's the way forward. But, um, 
Yeah, I'd love to go go down this this rabbit hole further and further, but I'm realizing that we uh, we definitely need to get back to your amazing project that you completed. <laughs> uh, I do love the deep esoteric stuff, but um, uh, yeah, I I think we kind of left off last when we talked about your project, and you you planned it as a sort of smaller adventure, and it kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger um, as as it went on. What was the experience and the kind of techniques behind actually like planning something like that, the logistics especially as you're both working full time as well whilst you're planning a gargantuan adventure that must have been a lot to juggle with yeah there was a there was a time where there was a, a tipping point where alex and i and the rest of the team had a discussion that at this point it's going to some something's going to need to give if we want to scale this again so when we decided to do the film, that was where it really uh, stepped up. So before the before the film, it was just going to be a cycle where we were going to maybe talk to a few people uh, and and have a few interviews. Then we thought, well, a lot of these things that we're discussing, most people would be quite interested in as well. Like why why just leave it for us and why why not share it with the rest of the world? These climate solutions, we don't know about them. We're going there to investigate hang on most people don't know about them so why not share it so then we decided to go for the film and that was where we had to sort of reevaluate our lives for the next i think it was about eight nine months or so the process of training for this expedition at the same time as producing a film getting a film crew in getting the funding for the film getting the logistics, all the permissions, the, the, where, where all the locations will be, the route that we were going to take and the support team that you needed to kind of get your message and your PR and your media across. So there was a huge amount at that point. And that was about October 20, 2020. Um, yeah. that, was, that was around that time where we decided to do that. And we grew from a team of, I think there was about six of us, some support team. And then we grew to a team of 25 um, in the space of four months to be able to, to, be able to do this. Um, and we raised, I think we raised about all in all, including, you know, not physical money, like things that have helped us with, with getting the, the job done. I think it was about 50,000 um, pounds during a pandemic. It was incredibly hard to do during this pandemic, but it, it required a lot of realigning goals and things in life with, with much of us. Like during a pandemic it was quite convenient, but no social life really could go on. <laughs> <laughs> that really helped. Actually. So uh, yeah, like imagine all that time you would spend doing all the mad socials that you were doing before. I'm not saying everyone does mad socials, but uh, <laughs> all that time went into this. And, and I think we made a gem. So yeah, it was, it was, yeah, we used the pandemic for good. <laughs> yeah, we, we were originally going to go in the summer of 2020 as well. Uh, and it's kind of good that we didn't. <laughs> actually, that, that, that like kind of lockdown actually really helped the project as well. Uh, it allowed us to have a lot more ambition as well, a lot more time and to really scale it up. So we're really glad that we didn't do just a little cycle uh, in the end. It was it well? It, we say it's a little cycle. It's not yeah. a little cycle. <laughs> we say that because the it's cycle like one thousand miles. <laughs> yeah, compared to every the whole project as a whole, like the cycle is actually just a small part. So, like whilst we're on the bike climbing hills, it didn't feel little. But then, like a bird's eye view of the two years of the project is just 
one tiny bit. Yeah, two which weeks. is really, which is, and mentally that's very, like, e- not super hard either. Well, no, that's not true. There were some, like, pretty intense moments, but it was just, like, a big fun, you know, trip. Like, it was, it was great. We're outdoors all day, every day. Um, saw some amazing scenery, like, exceptional landscapes all over the UK. So, to, it feels like, you know, the easy part, I guess, <laughs> compared to all the film permissions and the admin. <laughs> Yeah, did, uh, did you manage to find a balance between sort of soaking up the amazing experience you were having, like at the time, you know, like cycling, like, like through the Lake District or something like that, versus kind of worrying about the next stage in the journey and the logistics and like, you know, you've got uh, the support crew and where are we going to meet the support crew? And then the, the documentary people are going to be here at this time. It must have been like a hell of a lot to hold in your mind at, at once, maybe more of a mental challenge than a physical one then. Yeah, it was, you know, exactly. This is a brilliant question. Mm-hmm. Um, very much so. There was moments where we had um, mindfulness moments and there would be times, Alex actually had the, the captaincy of this. So <laughs> we had this uh, like mindful 10 minutes just as a reminder throughout the day every now and then. And just to like, let's just take in what we're doing here. And then there was also times when you're, where you're on the bike and you're on the bike for distances of you know, two, three hours at points like you're not you you just go into sort of the zone i call it anyway and then you're just not you're just not focusing on anything else but other than what you're doing and those are kind of those sort of mindful moments to break it all up but you know in the morning you'd wake up you had your routine we check up the itinerary what we're we doing here here and here in the day is that all set up nice and fine is it not sometimes it had it changed a lot so we had to reschedule the busiest parts were usually the mornings um, yeah. in terms of just getting everything set up ready to go and then you just knew that at this point you'd do this at this point you'd do that and it, because we've been talking about it for god knows like two or three months beforehand it was almost like the itinerary was in our head and it was like clockwork if that makes sense so we, you're not mm. really thinking too much about it because you know it's just going to flow but there was one crucial day one extremely crucial day where everything could have gone wrong and the whole itinerary, the whole film would have been smack and ruined. And that was on the, the first day of the trip, which was doing the <laughs> no water, bike, water bike crossing. So the first day of the trip required us to finish a cycle and a water bike crossing because then everything else was scheduled within the next days thereafter. Mm. If you were delayed or late a whole day, that skews everything out the window. And there's no way you're going to reschedule all these interviews in time, your accommodation, everything in time. So it was really crucial that we were able to do that. Um, our plan B was to not do the water bike crossing and actually take the ferry so that we could continue to gen- the, the journey. But then that's not the most environmentally friendly way. Like a water bike would be cooler <laughs> and more environmentally friendly. But yeah, they'll, they'll, yeah. So I guess that answers your question. There were points where we were not always thinking about it. Yeah, it was interesting. You measure, you mentioned that kind of like sense of like a pressure of these things stacked on top of one another on certain days. Do you have your own like individual ways of just like holding with that pressure in those moments? Because it can be really difficult to. It feels like a weight on your back sometimes when you've got a lot at stake, especially if there's funding involved from different companies sponsorship things like that 
Yeah, we uh, quite yeah. A, we worked together, Alex and I. Like we, we talked much. a lot. Like communication yeah. was was key, really. Like not hiding anything and like sharing if you were feeling overwhelmed. Um, we know we know each other's mental health path very well now. So we when we can even see when you know one one of us is not doing so well or whatever. But I think yeah, we worked really well communicating and then we had a big team as well so we did our best to work with them and you know have them have as much ownership when we were on the bikes as possible of of the logistics and you know of taking care of the finer finer things so that we didn't have to do it whilst we're on the bikes basically um amazing and and you uh you mentioned that you've you had all these interviews lined up and many of these interviews were with professionals involved with the national parks um, running down your route. And it'd be amazing if you could share some of the sort of key learnings that you had, um, maybe just some of the things that surprised you. I'm sure you've both been to a fair few of the national parks, but I'm guessing you learned a, a fair few things on the journey as well from these professionals, rangers and such. Yes. Yeah. So that all in all, I think that was 26 interviews that we did. And in the film, we only covered six um, of the interviews. And so we're, we're looking to try and extend uh, and do a series and things at the moment. But yeah, from learning standpoint, <laughs> I, I really wish I like filmed everything really myself, like what in my, all the conversations I was having in my head to the conversations I was having with people, because I was learning just constantly for that two weeks it was like a intense learning learning session uh, the biggest learnings i found in the national parks were a very surprising in fact was the ability of the parks to be so different i just was so shocked at how different they all, all managed and how different they were impacted by human activity they they all had a different story. Every single one of them had a different story. Yes, the population is increasing and more people were visiting the parks. That's a common thread. But the way they were managing it, the, the damages they were having and the types of environments they were, were all so different, the ones we visited. And for me, that was quite shocking because you just say, oh, national park is national park. Everything's the same. Trees, mountain, lake. Um, but there's actually a lot more to it. They have different environments, different biodiversity. They have different areas where they have people. So in certain national parks like the Cairngorms, I was really interested to hear how they manage the, the, the tourist flow. And they specifically build infrastructure in a certain area and they don't extend that infrastructure out. They don't create new paths. They don't create like ways of getting into sort of the wilder spaces because they're trying to prevent people from getting involved in those spaces and building in those spaces. So by trying to keep everyone in one spot, the damage or the human impact is all in one spot, not the whole thing, the whole park. Whilst if you go to the Lake District, there's loads of interconnecting towns and villages all the way through. And then there's paths in between all of them. The whole park is, is very much under a lot more threat. Inhabited basically every corner. Yeah, yeah. that was striking. Like the, the footfall was insane because of how accessible it is. And it was really interesting and a shocking learning that actually maybe it's a good thing not to have too much access in certain parts mm. just to protect and preserve them and, and keep that sort of habitat intact. 
and that that was a really interesting learning point from just visiting the national parks mm. yeah, also learning how much work is still left to be done to improve access and infrastructure to the parks not via cars i think about 90 percent of visitors still come in private cars and the number one activity in parks is still to drive around um and there's just a lot of work needs to be done to improve ways of getting in especially with trains and, and coaches just to get people to go in in a more environmentally sustainable way and less damaging and just less stressful way as well because no one likes to be sat in queues of cars in small towns like trying to find the parking spot uh, but then that raises other questions like how do you build train lines without damaging you know further as well because that requires new investment new infrastructure um yeah. we had an interview um, on that didn't we with exactly. the H- hs2 people yeah oh really yeah we had one contentious one very contentious yeah yeah (laughs) Mm. was it was that Um, with the management of the that project or with the like protesters involved it was a mixture of the protesters the local mp and the more against people yeah Uh, but we tried to keep it as a neutral conversation um trying to get a balanced view um Mm. yeah that was quite hard. I think if we wanted to really talk about that project, we'd have had to get a lot more voices and like stakeholders involved and just one side because it is such a huge infrastructure project covering so many parts of the UK. Like it's very complex to get the overall view of it. So mm. it's, yeah, it's not something, it's something if we wanted to talk about it, we'd have to investigate it a lot more than just, just one, one, the one view that we saw. Uh, but that, that's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting too. And there's also uh, work being done by railways. They're working, you know, there's a lot of tourism agencies in Scotland. They want more people to come, but not necessarily with their car. Because, for example, North Coast 500, stunning route, absolutely brilliant to cycle. But it's actually, it was rammed like the last two summers because of staycationers. Mm. And there's a lot of, um, there's, they don't have the infrastructure. To, in to these towns actually yeah. not um, enough accommodation not enough food outlets not enough toilets parking that kind of thing so so it'd be interesting we we talked to the national parks and they've said um to you know to the overall overall organization national parks uk and they were saying we've been wanting for years for more people to come to the parks and to get involved and to visit uh, because it does benefit the local economies as well uh, and then suddenly they got a bit more than they wished for with the last two staycations because <laughs> yeah. huge, like in, insane, like, you know, visitor numbers increased by Three times. triple digits. Yeah, insane. Like, wow. you know, 200, yeah, what's that? 200% increase in some parks, especially Lake District, given that it's, you know, kind of in the middle of the UK, so easily accessible. Mm. Um, and they've, you know, it's been a good source of income, but it also, you know, the infrastructure wasn't always there. Yeah. So it's been interesting, like some parks like Exmoor, they get obviously a lot smaller um, of a footfall than Lake District. So it was interesting to see them, how, how they managed uh, what was happening there. And it was quite interesting. Marketing has a big mm. say in this because Exmoor isn't as marketed as other other parks are. The budget is yeah completely you know dwarfed mm. by that of the Lake District or yeah. of the Peak District, for example. So yeah. just not as many people are aware. Like if you do... I've noticed this subjectively asking people like if they've been to a national park, it will usually be the one nearest to them. So I guess around London, it will be like South Downs, maybe New Forest. And then Lake District is pretty much always. Or Peak. Always or on, peak on district, yeah, yeah, exactly. Lake or Peak. Yeah. When we you went to. someone yeah. say like, I've been to like the Northumberland National Park, for example. They don't, like, is, that North, Broads, yeah. is that a national <laughs> park? Northumberland? That's, that's what you'll get. Is that, the people yeah. don't think it's a national park. There's 15 
national parks, but I think some, most people would, could mm. only count maybe one or two or three. Yeah. Um, the, the Lake Windermere was great when we cycled through there. It literally felt like cycling through London. Sorry, Windermere, but yeah, that, that was, yeah, that was grand, grand with tourists. But then, you know, you go to the, the, the Cairngorms and up there, you can go for hours without seeing anyone else. So you really do feel like you're in a wild place, you know, even if it, most of it isn't wild, like has, it's been managed and the forests have been managed and the agriculture there and just, you know, the types of plants that have grown there. But you do feel like this is a place that hasn't been touched anywhere near as much as a lot of the agricultural and past, you know, um, land that you see throughout the rest of the country. So interesting, like, and, and everyone just felt better being in those areas as well. You just have that space. You don't have that background noise of traffic and of just of urban life behind. And everyone just felt a lot more at ease and at peace. So it's quite shocking when we arrived in Glasgow as well. <laughs> Because we cycled right through the center of Glasgow. So that was quite a shock to the system after, well, like six days of cycling through the highlands. <laughs> and yeah. mostly in small places. Uh, yeah, it, it really can be. Like, well, I, I've had similar experiences where I've spent a long time in a very quiet, nature filled spot and then even come into like a tiny town in Devon, but still a town and feeling totally overwhelmed. I'm like, hold on, I'm, I'm used to this. I live in a bigger town than this, but cars are driving by and I'm getting like startled by cars because I'm not used to them. It's amazing how easily you'll just really like drop into a landscape, especially when you're moving at the speed of a, of a bike. Um, you really kind of like, I, I'd imagine you sort of, I don't know, felt like at home in these places for a few days, especially you were, you were camping as you went as well. So there's a real <laughs> connection to the land as you went. Especially oh, yeah. with the wild camping, yeah. yeah, that that really was the best camping we did. You know, we we had a night camping next to um, Lake. What was it? Lock, um, Lock Morlick. Morlick, Morlick. Yeah, that's the one. And you could see across. It was like a postcard waking up to a postcard. You know, to an idyllic sit- setting. We or across. Uh, you could see the snow-capped peaks of the mountains, even in the summer. And it's so mm-hmm. tranquil. And you know, you had ducks walking around, and and lots of birds, wildlife, and that was that was the best night of camping I think of the trip for me um just so restful as well like even though we're doing a lot that you just felt refreshed as well you felt good in the mornings when you woke up could imagine doing all these interviews in cities and cycling through cities every day and just driving around (laughs) as well yeah (laughs) that would have been hard work (laughs) yeah delivery style (laughs) Alex, I've got to come back to what you said earlier because it really surprised me when I heard it and I have to double check this. So you said the number one activity in these national parks or some of the national parks is just driving around, not like getting out the car and doing like an activity, but like being in the car yeah, and just yeah, driving and you, looking yeah. at stuff. Drive, yeah, like a safari just, park. A little, yeah, dr- a little yeah. bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Drive, stop, take photo, Instagram, get back on, drive again. <laughs> Maybe okay. go to the pub or whatever, but yeah, the main... You know, the main activity is, is just to drive around the park and just look mm. around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, you, you often imagine these, like, these national parks as just like, the, like they're there and there's not a kind of like mediation of how people are supposed to go in and do things. But like what I really found from your documentary and now this conversation is that it's so important to be good stewards of those places and like Mm. educate people properly about how to um 
how to respect the land um, because it doesn't just belong to you. Coming back to that point of ownership of like, you know, we, it may be labeled, you know, property of whoever, uh, whoever owns the national parks, but th there are all these amazing species that of, of plants and animals and, and micro, um, in the microbiome and everything else that lives there that, you know, mm. they have a right to that land too. And maybe those parts of the national park that we can't get to, you know, maybe that belongs to you know the really wild things that aren't human as well because they need to have spaces that also absolutely yeah yeah and you know they have a role you might think oh but humans need to get there and we need to build things or whatever but they're actually essential because they're carbon sinks if you want to think of it as like what benefit do they provide us even if we can't go there huge carbon sinks peatland bogs that you often can't go in on as well uh they they store five a peat you know one unit of peatland, just peatland as a whole just stores five times more carbon than than trees mm. like they're they're incredible we learn a lot about those in in dartmoor we had a good interview with a ranger there um there are areas that we it's cool maybe go and check it out or something but not we shouldn't bring masses of people there we could you know we can leave it respect it leave it to be to manage itself really. uh, nature is pretty amazing at managing itself without our intervention really so um, yeah, I agree. There are, there are a lot of places that should just be left. Um, there's not that many left in this country, but this is a dense country, right? There's a lot of other countries as well around the world, which are a lot less densely populated, where there are areas like that being kept and preserved. Um, mm. So it's encouraging to see how many other national parks are around the world as well. And there's, you know, there's lists of future potential ones. There's some in the UK as well. And there's even cities, uh, I think. Isaac, you can talk about those as well. There's National Park Cities. Yes. Um, like organization that's coming. That's re really interesting what they're trying to do as well. Yeah I, can, yeah, I can talk on that. I mean, one of the massive facts is that UK has got the lo uh, the lowest levels of biodiversity in the world. Hmm. And that, wow. that, re that was a massive learning like during this process. I learned that last year and I just thought, hang on a minute. We go around preaching to everybody about how to do things. We're not even doing it well ourselves. So how can we go around like, you need to do this, you need to do that to other countries when we're not showing the example, which is why I think the COP26 was very, very important for us this year to try mm. and lead by example and show that we're actually trying to do something. But yeah, national park cities, they're really interesting concepts. So I spoke to a couple of the people who are on their sort of board of, uh, and directors of, of it all and they're trying to push it. They're basically organizations that are championing in a green city. So London is a very green city compared to a lot of cities like New York, New York and places like in Sydney and things like that. London is very good. What they want to do is champion it and increase the green space and increase the awareness of green space and also do more rewilding and try to build sort of green corridors in 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 the in the city or very hard to do. But they, they're talking almost at a micro level where you've got kind of pastures that go along, along streets and interconnect and things like that, just trying to, to, to bring it together so that there's some migrationary routes because and one of the biggest issues of biodiversity loss, why the UK is terrible at it, is that we cut through migratory routes. Mm. And that means that the, they can't get from A to B, they can't migrate and they can't get the food from one place that they used to get the food from. And the food where they are currently now is not, 
it isn't where the food is and, and they die out. And this, this is one of the major issues. So National Park City is really focusing on doing that. And they have um, projects in London, which is the biggest one, but they're also looking to turn Edinburgh uh, and Glasgow and, Car- and Cardiff all as National Park cities. So it's almost giving them that sort of National Park status of such, which is really, I think, uh, uh, the way to go. Um, not only do we need to protect the spaces that we have, like national parks, but we also need to maybe reintroduce nature into our towns and cities. Yeah, and maybe that is part of our perspective change from you know us being superior to nature to us being you know in a in a sort of uh, in a round table, you know, like with every, with every mm-hmm. life form, you know, having its own chair, and we're just here part of this this um, yeah this this network and having actually nature in our cities and not somewhere that we go out to experience but like somewhere that you could experience regularly in your day-to-day and maybe then that has the knock-on effect of you know not everybody going to the lake district with their staycation because they because they could stay or go to a different a new district in their own city and and see something cool yeah it's incredible what you can explore on your doorstep isn't it during the pandemic I, i guess you found some new routes from where you lived uh, some new places that you've never been before, some new little outdoor spaces, green spaces, blue spaces. I, I found loads um, just around where I lived and I was mm. shocked. I was actually shocked about how much there actually was on my doorstep. I had a lot of little bits of pockets of nature. Um, and I think one of the things that we didn't really get across in our film was that you can just explore locally, very locally. We said, you know, UK was our message. You can stay in the UK and you can see all these cool things in the UK. But even on a micro level, you can see a lot just in around sort of your towns and villages and places where you live. Even in London, there's loads of cool places like Richmond Park where you can find a lot of different outdoorsy spaces. Hmm. If, if someone were to say, oh, I, I, I don't have time to watch the movie, but can you give me like the sort of the, the most important point you feel is like a take home for people? Um, of like what that what the message of that film is about for you guys um what what would you say i would say yeah the the biggest message is that we have a number of, of climate solutions a number of different activities and projects that we can get involved in that can make a difference in living and coexisting with nature and improving the world to live sustainably so that that's the core message mm. the cycle was very much like a shiny object um, it was to attract people it was a nice eco-sustainable journey through all these projects but the main message is there's a lot out there there's a lot of positive things that people are doing and there's a lot that you can get involved in to help make make a change yeah yeah you don't have to be sitting in your armchair at home watching bbc news thinking oh gosh what are we doing yeah you can actually oh go God. out there and there, there is i got a real sense um or it's sort of it, it re it sparked me up to remember again that there's like a sort of live a living lab it's like a laboratory out there in terms of like different people experimenting with different things and you know some of them are going to be wild successes and some of them are going to fail but what's important is that we need to go through this really rapid intense cycle of like learning as we go in terms of what's going to work and you know how do we manage our national parks how do we grow food locally and get more people involved how do we uh, impact our travel system and like do lots of these mini experiments which it seems like you really tapped into on your journey yeah 
totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Um, how, how would you say the, that the pedal for parks journey is, has like changed you in terms of maybe your outlook on our current situation or for yourselves personally in terms of your, like your character or yeah, a journey of that scale and size and all that went into it must've had a real impact on you. Mm. Um, I would say, yeah, for me personally, it's uh, given me like a lot more, um, like empowerment I guess like that I can make a difference and you just kind of have to change your mindset and then really you know with the correct drive and the correct people around you like I'm very grateful to Isaac because he taught me a lot about running a project like this about getting fit about all the different bits and pieces that go that go into such a project that you can like anyone like I'm not much you know more cleverer or like well off or even more educated than anyone else you just it was all about really like finding the focus and then mm. you kind of when you have a really strong reason why and really strong purpose then it's a lot easier to make what you might even consider you might say sacrifices they might not even be sacrifices at all a lot of times they're like distractions like it's just how you spend your time so that that, that was probably the biggest learning for me and that there is so much you can do to help uh, the climate the climate crisis and help it not be a crisis anymore, which is what we want, right? We want it to be, it would be nice to talk about the climate in a really positive light eventually, uh, rather than all the, all the kind of doom and gloom that's kind of present, because there's enough other problems as well that we have to deal with. So <laughs> just as part of life, so it would be nice if talking about nature and the environment was something that brought, yeah, a lot, a lot more joy overall to, to society in, in the mainstream way, at least. Yeah, beautiful. How about yourself, Isaac? Yeah, I guess um, it brought a lot of aspects of, of my life that were in kind of distant from each other. So it, it brought things together. So I, I studied geology and geoscience and my careers in, in the energy industry, energy transition. I do loads of sports adventures and mental health and physical health come hand in hand with a lot of my sports and adventures. And this project allowed me to combine the two, which I never had done before. And it's, it's been amazing. Because <laughs> um, sometimes I feel like with this project, I'm living a very good, wholesome life. Whilst beforehand, I had two lives. And I was this energy transition, doing all these different things. And then I was doing these sports and adventures on the side and getting outdoors, but they were kind of not that entwined or they were quite separate and I was jumping one to the other, but it was really nice to put them together for this. So um, that, that, that was, that, that's what pedal for parts did for me. And then um, learning wise, it was kind of how I could navigate and find purpose in something that is always changing. And um, so this year I was doing the pedal for parks and I'm doing this climate change um, and project with Alex. But next year, we might want to do a bit more on climate solutions and less mental health. And that purpose can sometimes change with different people. And it's then working out where to go together. And that, that was an interesting learning point. Um, Alex and I, when we started the project, it was just a cycle. And then our purpose with it changed. And we, we you know, we went together on on the, on the same stream and i think i think that's really 
uh, interesting learning that you, you don't often get um, in a workplace or a place like that where you're working for someone else or something like this. It was very much quite quite challenging to, to do, but it was a good learning to, to have from it. Yeah, we had to make all the decisions, really. Like, there's no no one telling us, really, what to do. So that, that's really awesome. But it's also sometimes, you know, it can be a bit overwhelming at times when there's too many decisions to make in a short amount of space. But uh, so that's why the communication has always been, like, super key. So we know we're on the same page and we're working, you know, to the same goal. We want to achieve the same things. It's not like, oh, I want to do climate solutions. I want to do mental health instead. Like, we had... You know we work together on the same on the same page mm. that's one of the beautiful things about the project is that so like all of these elements were talking to each other like for you know from the actual like that physical endurance side of it to benefiting mental health to on the way v- cycling through these national parks and amazing wild spaces to bring up the whole uh, question of our climate solutions and ecological solutions so it was really lovely to see those interwoven into one project thank you yeah that was a really good summary thanks That's, yeah yeah uh yeah no worries I'll, I'll be on your marketing team you can ask me it's fine <laughs> yay <laughs> please <laughs> um uh, yeah i also imagine that there are lots of people that do endurance things and this was uh you know a long old journey and a lot of like planning and stuff and what must have been really energizing is having a purpose behind it that's bigger than yourself rather than just like me getting across the finish line which i'm sure was a great experience in itself but in those harder times when you're juggling a lot of different things and your legs are tired because you cycled 80 miles in a day like having that little bit of spark of energy behind you because it's about something that you care about deeply yeah, we, we saw this as a team, a team of the planet. And this wasn't a team of, of just us. You know, there, there's, there's a, a lot more at stake. Every single human on this planet um, is going to be influenced and impacted by climate solutions. So when we were trying to, when we're cycling to those climate solutions, we're thinking, yeah, well, we, we're getting a story out there that could really help a lot of people. Um, so let, let, let's keep pushing these legs. <laughs> Yeah. And if, if someone is like, they're in the car listening or they're sitting at home listening and they're like, I'm, I'm feeling inspired by these guys. I'm, I've got a little spark and I want to do something with it. But, you know, in two days, that spark could be gone. Like, how, how would you advise them to like start, turn that spark into some kind of action and, and get the ball rolling and to start their own purpose driven adventure of whatever sort? Oh, yeah. Pl- plenty of different ways to go about it. Um, tell someone how you're feeling and they might bounce back like why are you feeling like this then you suddenly you're talking about all these ideas that you want to do and then suddenly you're 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 you're, you're on your on your way writing it down if you have any thoughts from this or inspiration mm-hmm. uh, to, to write down one action yeah yeah an action um i think the trouble is a lot of people they get inspired and they watch they go to talks or they re- watch tedx talks or ted talks and things and they get inspired, but there's a there's a moment where wow, this I've got this urge to do something. I've got this, but what what is it? And then spending some time at that point where it's hot, and I, I always call it like when it's hot. The yeah, Alex knows that I will just write to him when it's hot. I'll just be yeah, like, yeah. Jesus, this has just come to my head. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> but it's really important sometimes to capture that 
because then it'll just get lost and it'll float away. Um, it might come back again, but some not all, all the time. So I, I'd advise anyone to write it down or tell someone about how you feel and what you're doing or what you want to do. Mm. Yeah, because when you are when you start that collaboration of sorts so early, even if you lose that little bit of energy, then the other person might like energize you from like keeping the spark going it's kind of like carrying the torch you know you know sometimes you're both carrying the torch sometimes it's just one of you who's like leading the charge but like as long as there's a team it's just always stronger when there's multiple people involved oh yeah Definitely. yeah and you can use yourself as the torch right like you can write it down and look back on it later mm. and then you just light it up again <laughs> yeah amazing <laughs> um what do you what do you feel people don't maybe they like don't understand or uh, appreciate about the climate and nature emergency that we have and so I, yeah we're gone alex you go first cheers uh probably because so many people are disconnected and don't spend time in nature every day or even every week it's not a part of their lives they don't really feel the impact and maybe because we also haven't had huge huge environmental disasters in the uk although you know there's been for example a lot more flooding for example in this country in the lot in the past year they don't feel as affected by it so they don't feel like it's gonna really happen here um say so maybe like if getting everyone more connected with nature and just you know feeling part of it having that symbiotic relationship a bit more would definitely make people care about it a lot more just if it was just more present in their lives. And that's not necessarily putting the blame on them either fully. Um, there's also, you know, just areas that we live in, right? A lot, most of us, more and more of us live in cities. So it's also on the people designing in these cities, designing the spaces, because they didn't just pop up, right? Everything is just, someone's made the decision to make, you know, a particular road or particular building or particular area one way. That's all man-made decisions. Um, connecting, yeah, reconnecting humankind, like, us with nature a lot more then people will care about it a little more a lot more and we had those two really good interviews and they're both both have bits in the film actually one was Gareth, the outdoor educator in lake district and one with uh pete for the founder of puk a kayaking company and they both work with children and try to for example pqk a kayaking place they um they try to do it through sport making kids care more about the environment so We'll come, you, uh, you'll come and do like morning, we'll do kayaking and then the afternoon we'll do a litter pick or we'll learn about these plants on the banks of the riverside or why river streams, you know, river ecosystems, why they're so important and how they work. And because they're connecting like a fun activity that they enjoy, they want to do it again, then they also want to care for the environment where they're going to do that activity, right? Um, so getting pe people involved as well, um, not seeing it as a chore, like you were saying earlier in, in this podcast, like something that's actually enjoyable and something that allows them to just feel better and they see that connection and they feel better themselves. Gareth, when he takes children into the outdoors and they learn to make tools themselves and they spend time in nature, they do follow-up work with the schools and they ask the kids, how did you feel last time? How do you feel now? How did you feel before you came here when you're at school? How do you feel now you're here? And it's, it's never negative. <laughs> it's, it's always positive feedback. Like no one ever, I don't know anyone who's ever been out for like a really nice good walk outside or a hike or something and say, oh, I feel so much worse now. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't happen. So mm. it's, it's not how we're wired. So, so yeah, a bit of a rambly answer. That's 
that's um that's how I feel about about it. Yeah, I say it's down to it. I think a lot to do with education is the barrier. Um, I mean, I come from an underprivileged school. I mean, it's a privilege to go to school, but the the school I was in was in a, in this town called Luton, and it you know it closed down when I was there. It wasn't teachers. Uh, they're just focused on get the get them to get the grades, learn maths, get them past that. They're not thinking about the wider problems like climate climate change. They don't they don't put that on kids at all. They just want them to get through and do these get their grades. Or even so, in my school in particular, it was just behave well. Just sit in class mm. and actually just write stuff down and not like have a fight and try and do this and do that. Like it's really challenging. And what happens is they're going through school and they're not getting any education on outdoors, environment, nature, bigger political issues, bigger climate change issues. And then they come out of school completely unequipped uh, in that sense. And then what happens is they venture into these national parks or they venture into these places they find about them and they don't know what to do. They just, they rock up there and in the town what they live in, they can drop some rubbish and don't worry, the cleaner will come and like sweep up, the sweeping machine will come. But in national parks, it's not like that, but they sometimes have this attitude and that's because it's just down to education, really. I mean, if they were taken into places like Alex just said, the peak UK and Gareth, they had the privilege, some of these places, these kids were to do that. I mean, Gareth was teaching some quite lucky children, <laughs> but it's not like that across the UK um, and especially in other countries. So I think, yeah, a massive comes down to education massively. And that's why with our climate change um, impact campaign, I mean, we're we're doing more than just talks and podcasts and things like that. We're looking to, to actively take uh, uh, kids outdoors and do workshops with them um, and that, that, that's part of our community interest company and I think that makes a huge difference to to the way they will grow up and how they will interact with nature later um, um, behavior change I think sometimes can come when you're young um, you can get it when you're older I mean I came from Luton and I mean I didn't learn anything about nature or how to preserve nature or be environmentally friendly or anything didn't know any of that. And I hardly went into nature up until I went to university. I, was, I studied geology and that's where I kind of got an appreciation of it. But that was like one in what, how many kids from that town? You know, not that many. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's a, a wonderful journey and a lovely, um, uh, yeah, impact to have with, with what you're doing in terms of that goal of, educating people and just highlighting the importance of having any kind of experience life experience out in nature because wh when you actually have something to connect to in terms of like what does nature mean to me it's it, you start to automatically care for it a little bit more and it's not like you're going to jump to you know like being David Attenborough after one day in the woods <laughs> some, some people maybe yeah the, the good ones on their TikTok <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> practicing exactly. the voice <laughs> yeah yeah the the new era David Attenborough but um yeah I, I mean I kind of look at it like um you know like you know we, we you know in a healthy family relationship you know there's love the kids love their parents you know and and one of the reasons maybe they love their parents is because their parents has always been there for them has always fed them has always like given them nourishment has always encouraged them and 
in a more abstract way, I think our planet has done that for us in terms of, you know, our planet doesn't need American dollars or euros or pounds for the food that we extract out of the ground. We get that for free. We turn it into money eventually, but we, we're given that. And there are so many other, you know, the air that I'm breathing right now, like I haven't paid for that. I haven't earned it in any way. I'm just here living. Um, I've been given this gift of life along with everybody else in various forms. But um, a lot of our population, I feel, are disconnected from that. And maybe when they connect back with it more through things like forest schools and education about the way that we're connected to our environment, they can actually see the gift that our environment gives us. And when they feel that gift, you know, when someone gives you a gift, you want to give something back. You know, you want mm. to reciprocate that good energy. So hopefully that will if we get not just kids actually, but yeah, all of our population, wherever they can, you know, out to national parks or in the forest school or any kind of out in the garden, in the, the allotment, connecting back to those natural patterns, whatever they may be. I hope that we can, yeah, start, start to heal, get where we need to go. Yeah. I hope to. Yeah. For sure. yeah. We, we, we found also you come, you come across that environmental talk can be quite boring for people have you like a lot of people was like oh i've heard this so many times blah 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 so one of the things with this cycle and this adventure was it's a world first we made it kind of shiny it's like a secret way to get the environmental conversation in it's like oh wow they did this crazy water bike thing let's find out about that let's watch the film oh wait oh that's telling me about i didn't know that (laughs) yeah and that is that is such an important like in terms of behavior change and how we approach these things it's really like we need to think smart in how we can start to not throw these big concepts right in in front of people's faces but like make it relevant to them and i think that's that's mm. what this project does really well because like you know the, the, the land's end john O'Groats thing is very well known and it's a real achievement and then throw water bikes into the mix <laughs> and it gets way more interesting as well i gotta ask you actually about the water bikes or the sea bikes yeah. sorry is that the correct term uh, water uh, bikes no you had oh. it right yeah yeah, yeah. How, how was did, did you practice like how did you even find out about these because i did not know they existed until like i watched your film uh to today so it's yeah a really interesting contraption yeah that was that was came from isaac uh that, that idea at the start so he can tell you about how you found out about them and i can tell you about how little practice we had <laughs> on them <laughs> Yeah, um, I got a couple of mates in the adventure world who are a bit like mad anyway, and they do all this, all sorts of things. And I, I you know, when you just kept keeping up with friends on Facebook, what the hell is this guy doing? He was on a water bike and he was part of a relay um, going from somewhere in Monaco to an island somewhere. I can't remember. June, uh, Corsica. Corsica. Corsica to Monaco. Corsica yeah. to the Monaco. <laughs> cycling a water bike, the first to ever do it. And I was this sounds mad. And then that was where the penny dropped. I thought, ah, sustainable way of getting from island to mainland. And it's a bike and we're cycling. And I thought, we've got to do this. We've got to do this. So, um, yeah, on the car journey up to a, I think it was a, um, just, just a training weekend, wasn't it, in the Peak District. I said, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And yeah. I explained what a water bike was and blah, blah, blah. And then everyone was like, yeah, let's do it. And we can connect the islands and then maybe talk about Orkneys and, and the Isles of City. So, yeah, that, that that's where the, the inception came from. And the bikes, um, these water bikes, they're called, they were called Schiller bikes. 
and there was an American brand that made them. But there's actually quite a lot of different types of water bikes that I didn't know of anyway. Um, but this so happened to be very robust and very seaworthy. The fact that it was able to do that crossing from Monaco to Corsica, it made me feel that it's possible maybe to do the sea crossing. Um, the Pentland Firth is extremely dangerous crossing um, with high tides, um, 50 miles per hour at times, loads of shipwrecks everywhere for obvious reasons for it being just really dangerous and, and choppy. So we thought if we're going to attempt it, it has to be a robust bike. So although there's other bikes on the market, but for a bit of research you can find, those ones are very, very good. Um, and they, they essentially, for anyone listening, they are a spinning bike that you find in a gym, which is attached to two elongated fender floats, so about eight foot long each. And in between that is a drive chain that connects the spinning bike to a propeller that's submerged under the water. So as you pedal, you're pushing a propeller and your floats allow you to go up and over the waves. And the, yeah, those, those bikes, they're about three or four times harder than uh, cycling a normal bike. Mm. You've got all the currents and the waves and the, you know, the elements, the wind uh, against you because you're quite high up on them. Um, but they're, they're also um, three times slower as well because you can only go at a certain speed on them. Uh, so <laughs> although you, you want to go really quickly across and you can put a lot of power in, there's a lot of extra power that doesn't get you very far. So you're stuck at uh, five knots uh, as a maximum speed. So yeah, Alex can tell you how little trained because <laughs> <laughs> well, it was we, so hard to source them. <laughs> it's so hard to source them. That's why there's not many in the UK. It turns out there's you know ten, fifteen of them. So it was quite a battle just to find find some. So uh, we we got two from sponsors. We got them from sponsors. So one was Torquay Water Sports. So obviously down in Torquay that um, Isaac found. I think you found them online. I guess. Yeah. Um, just by googling like Schiller Bikes UK and just going through all the links, and they happen to have. Yeah, it wasn't oh, I don't even. Know how you found it those guys, it was. Uh, I phoned up Schiller Bikes, who then I said, yeah. I said, I said, "Have you got any bikes?" Said no. I said, and he said, "But you can contact the people we've sold them to." <laughs> I said, "Who have you sold them to in the UK?" And he said, "Well, let me dig that out from the past." And then from there, it was like an investigative. That's it. It was the <laughs> European rep. Yeah, he put us in touch with. <laughs> I rang up a place in Bilbao at one point to see if we could get some because initially the idea is all five of us would be on 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 the water bikes. Uh, eventually, we changed to doing a relay with just two people on the sea at any one time for safety reasons and speed reasons as well. And um, you know that kind of thing. Like we didn't want to be in a situation where we'd have to choose between saving one person rather than the other because we only had one safety boat guiding us, you know, with us providing support. And obviously with currents, you can get separated quite quickly. So that that was after some actual, like a bit more thought into it with, okay, maybe we'll, we'll keep on the safety side and it's still amazing and no one's ever done this before. So so that's why we went with two. Um, but yeah, that place, that Torquay Water Sports, they had one they could, they could lease to us and then they had one that was being repaired so we couldn't use it. And then the other ones came from Volvo. So... Isaac, yeah, I guess just from looking online, right? We found a few around the UK and Volvo happened to have some they bought a few years before for a cycle down the Thames for a charity fundraiser. And yeah, they just hadn't used them since. They were <laughs> in, a, in a warehouse in Reading and then Isaac uh, like, eventually got through all the people at like, Volvo and got to the right person. 
and they said, yeah, you can, you can definitely use them. They're not being used at all. So that was like some magic that happened. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, some more magic is that they provided us with two um, hybrid vehicles as well for, for the film and support crew. So that was that just turned from like a Google search into a pretty amazing sponsorship. Um, so we had two bikes on the water at any one time and then two bikes on the boat um, in case one broke. You know, you don't want to spend... <laughs> When you're going to the Arza Silly for like, you know, 50 plus kilometers, you don't want to spend time on the bike trying to fix it, repairing a broken cable or whatever. So, so that just allowed us to keep, keep the speed up. So that was really good, like reassuring to know we had two spare bikes in case something happened, which we didn't need to use. They're, they're, they're really good, actually. We didn't have any issues. Yeah. So the trouble the, of training, yeah. training with them was... Um, oh, yeah, training. That's, we, that was we, the original question. We only had, uh, what, uh, <laughs> by the time we obtained them, we had two months before we were doing the trip because it took so long to get hold of them. So we're like, oh my God, like we've only got two months. And then every time we went to take them to the sea and train with them, the conditions were terrible. The, the point where like you go off and the waves were just destroyed, like would break them because you, you kind of need to be out in the sea first before they're kind of, if the waves are like the breaking waves will just flip it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so, so it, it wasn't really that good. So we went to a few lakes uh, uh, to do some training, but you know that wasn't ideal. So there was a lot of unknown feeling before doing the sea crossing of uh, how we, they, yeah. how they do it. And it's just it was just the fact that some people had done a sea crossing in them before gave us a lot of hope and confidence that you know they can do it and they're very very seaworthy. Yeah, we had about an hour's worth of practice in <laughs> total on those bikes. But, you know, they're, they're very easy to get the hang of. Like, if you've been on the bike before, there's, they're very, there's no, they're not complicated. You steer the same way. So yeah. it's, it, they're just slower, <laughs> a bit slower and they don't go in a straight line necessarily. But apart from that, it's, it's a very simple system. Uh, and then we were blessed with amazing conditions, as you saw in the film, both in the Pentland first and then um, on the way to the Isles of Scilly. So actually both times the sea was amazingly slick. Um, yeah like a lake we were, yeah just we were, so 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 good the the boat pilot he he literally he's, uh <laughs> fished those waters up in orkney all his life he's like 56 or something like that his name's hamish and he said I, you only get a day like this maybe once or twice a year <laughs> yeah that, that was bloody like, amazing was so good it was worth waking up at like 3 a.m to, to do the penland first because the swell was um a lot calmer overnight and in the morning so originally we'd planned to do it on the very first day we planned to do cycle across all of Orkney and then cycle across to John O'Groats and down to um to up to a campsite by Dunnett's Head and then on the way to Orkney the pilot said and conditions in the evenings late afternoons evenings are just a bit too rough so it's unlikely that you'll be able to make it probably be too dangerous um and then he said let's do it in the morning we're like yeah like <laughs> we'll wake up at three to do that fine and it was actually amazing because it was like Sunrise. you know mid-june yeah so longest days of the year and in Orkney the days are even longer so obviously you're a much higher um latitude um up there so it was light at um, half two wasn't it <laughs> yeah it, was, it barely got dark actually like at night yeah so you kind of just feel awake like you're like okay the day's going so let's let's do this a long day the the adventure gods were looking down at you and smiling i think for the whole journey uh they, they wanted they wanted you to get across the finish line 
They're like, except you, this you one day we had a lot about. of rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One day, one day was kind of sad, and wasn't didn't feel was like a bit of a downer compared to all the others. That's when we were in a really built one. It was really built up. It was kind of going through Warrington, Wigan, between like Liverpool and Manchester. Quite built up, not much nature there, which meant there was a lot of traffic. Not much. We couldn't really even chat between ourselves because it was so loud. Um, mm. And it was just, yeah, you know, traffic lights all the time. You know, when there's traffic all the time, you're not as relaxed as well. And then it was raining that whole day too. And it was <laughs> just quite great. It's just such a contrast. Like up in, in Loch Lomond and up in, in, up in Scotland, we were actually almost topless at times because it was so hot and warm. Really, really quite striking. Um, and really surprised that like I saw... My mum lives down near the Mediterranean, near Marseille in France. And I saw a lot of similar like fauna, uh, not fauna, flora up there, uh, up in Loch Lomond, as we have, you know, back down in France, like pine trees, um, even like some sandy areas when we went to Finhorn. And it was just quite, yeah, quite shocking and amazing because I had no, no awareness. And there's kind of these microclimates and just so much going on, so much diversity in, in the UK, like of landscapes, like Isaac said earlier. All the national parks are different and have their own amazing like set of nature just to offer. So mm. yeah. Amazing. <laughs> and and so now that like Pedal for Parks has been completed, is there you, have you got your eyes on sort of the, the next stage of the, the project in terms of still um perhaps going on to that point you're making earlier about education and, and expanding things? Oh yes, that that's Definitely. Um, so we, we turned our, our project into a community interest company. Um, mm. so, so we can use you know, any profits or anything just gets reinvested in, in the message. Uh, and the ambition is to do more films, more educational pieces like this, getting involved in doing talks, speaking events, um, spreading awareness of climate solutions and giving them a platform. But not just on a UK scale, but on a, you know, an international scale now. So Pedal Parts has become like our sub-brand um, that we started with uh, and now we're called Climate Explorers yeah. and Climate Explorers is is the community interest company and Pedal for Parks was the team that made the the, the first film project Eco Adventure happen in the UK and yeah we, we were really successful with the film we got it um, in lots of film festivals we're, we've got more film festivals we're touring it this year and we also um, have managed to get it into the blue zone of the uh, United Nations COP26 they were so uh, up, for, you know, happy about it. They invited us again to do uh, other sort of educational films like this um, in in other cops, uh, COP twenty seven in Egypt and uh, COP twenty eight. I think it's UAE. So mm. we would love to get involved um, with those, but again, it's quite a lot of funding and finding the right team and the climate solutions. Uh, we realized that when we did this project the first time, there was a lot of time and effort that was um, put into it in our own personal life. So what we're doing at the moment is reshaping and growing our community interest team to be at a point where it doesn't require as much personal commitment in the preparations of creating these pieces and doing these big film projects. So just making it a bit more sustainable for us um, so that we can live our lives. I'm moving house uh in, in uh, next uh, month or so I, there's a lot going on so mm. <laughs> um it's quite hard to do all that and run something like this so that's what that's what we're up to and alex has got some other um things he want to share as well yeah we're, we're 
basically right now kind of recruiting like in the coming weeks looking for more uh, team members to join us to join our future expeditions uh, and we need we'd want to you know someone to help us with the media side of things and someone to help us with the filmmaking side of things so something we haven't really experimented with as much as self-filming so I think that could give quite a different angle as well on on future films uh, and it'll be a very good skill set for us to have it means we basically if we could have kind of the complete package in-house as well it would mean um, we could be a lot more flexible and we could you know with logistics logistics are quite challenging when doing this it's external uh, parties yeah this is it organizing people with different schedules different projects together their own work all of that uh, and then we're the other thing we're doing at the moment is kind of trying to get speaking gigs we, we have we're doing we've done quite a few talks already so we're building on that and we're also going to do deliver workshops in companies and organizations uh, we have several different ones we have we've learned a lot about how to run a business in a sustainable way we talk to a lot of b corporations uh, which our corporations are accredited there's basically an organization called b corp and they look at the way you conduct your business as a company and if you put people planet and profit um all as a kind of equal keystones of what you do not just profit <laughs> which is kind of kind of the default you go for for a business right uh, and they kind of do a big audit of just all those three aspects and see if all of them are being run in a sustainable way run in an ethical way um those kind of things um, and we've just learned a lot about how to that we want to share with other businesses there's a lot of more of a environmental and not just environmental but just sustainability as a whole so you know um, social aspect to what companies do now that um, companies are interested in but they don't always know what to start so we want to help them kind of guide them on their journey with what we've learned and obviously we have a lot of mental health background as well and Isaac's, you know, been a trustee of mine for three years. So he has a lot of expertise from that. Uh, and I have myself, you know, been through quite a lot of therapy, been involved in uh, community groups with this kind of thing. So I have a lot of lived experience as well that I can bring. So we want to, and obviously mental health is a huge thing. And it's something a lot people talk a lot, a lot more openly about in the last decade uh, in this country, which is great, but there's still a lot more work to be done and still a lot of a stigma or a fear of, publicly discussing it so talking about that as well and bring using our experiences of being in the outdoors and having purpose and how that's really helped um, our mental health to, to really flourish and to be to be well um, and yeah just using that to to build our capital and then allow us to do further you know more ambitious projects and eventually be able to be in a position where we can in an ideal world we could propose to schools you know in poor areas or underprivileged areas we want to, who can't afford to take kids out, you know, <laughs> they can sometimes barely afford to keep the schools running, um, to, you know, and let alone take them out for a week or even a day. Uh, like my primary school that I went to, it was a state one. I was just really lucky. Like they had really good funds and we had like an adventure playground in the school, uh, a lot of nature to just run around in. They took, you know, in year six, all the kids, like all the year sixes for a week just to do adventures and, down to for like a kind of a retreat almost in new forest so that'll be like amazing to be able to offer that to a lot of inner city schools and schools in underprivileged areas because that's everyone benefits from spending time in nature and just from what we discussed earlier about wanting to care for it so that's that's kind of the ambition the goal so a lot going on 
but yeah, it's, it's also very exciting. It's all positive uh, giving, essentially. Yeah. That's all yeah, that for, this, for us, this is about. This is it. We have we don't we do this kind of uh, as giving back as well. So this is this is a side thing. It's you know it's not a full time work. So it's not we don't depend on it. So we don't have that pressure of we need to make loads of money and like cut corners and not do things properly and you know be cynical like in that way as if we depend on it to to pay the bills and to to survive. So it's yeah trying to be just keeping a really positive space and take our time and just try and get yeah the snowball bigger and bigger <laughs> snowball of positivity that's a new metaphor yeah <laughs> yeah incredible a green snowball <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I, I have a great sense of admiration for you guys that as you said earlier you know, you've got full-time jobs and you're still putting out this like incredible work uh, and continuing the project on and looking for it to grow in a really organic way to serve this transition that we're going through right now as a as a collective so i mean i have to take my hat off to you and um i'm sure there's a lot of a lot of people out there who you're touching along the way in terms of you know inspiring them and just spreading good energy so yeah my, my thank you to you from uh, from the world <laughs> yeah. Yeah. thanks tom yeah thank you as well tom for you know having that platform mm. allowing these people to share their stories and uh, it might inspire a lot of other people to, to to create and do good things it's really cool Ah, no problem. Well, but before I ask my last question, as we're getting towards the end now, where, if people want to follow your journey from this point onwards and look back at some of the stuff you've done, where can they find all this stuff online? Oh, yeah. Um, our website is climateexplorers.co.uk. So on there, you'll see lots of blogs. Um, we have a podcast called Mind the Green Space, where you can find out more about climate solutions, a bit more in-depth conversations. And we also have our social media handles as at Climate Explorers um, for most of them. Um, there's a little bit of interchange because we weren't able to get every single handle the same. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Climate Explorers, you'll see all the links on our website. That's that's the best place. Um, and you know, if you want to get in touch, just DM us or send us an email or whatever. You know, Alex and I also, our personal accounts, you can get in touch with us too. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and I'm sure they'll notice you walking around. For those that don't have the uh, the video one, you, they're both wearing their uh, pedal for parks jerseys, <laughs> and they got the the raw orange going on. So it's definitely definitely very visible. Yeah, I, I, sure. I wouldn't say I wear it every single day, but um, <laughs> I'd, I'd put it on for the uh, for the photo. <laughs> I was hoping it was a week week round affair where you go into work Monday morning, you got the jersey on. <laughs> oh yeah, I think um, yeah, in, in my my full time job will be like, where's my logo? Where's the logo? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Um, okay, yeah. So last question before we wrap up, um, if. Uh, you were sort of magical ruler of the world and you had like a magic wand uh, and you could wave that wand and everybody on the planet would do one thing in their day um, automatically that you say, uh, what would that one thing be? That is a really great question. <laughs> All the power. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess the one thing that I would say, do one thing that makes you happy. Some people just don't do things that make them happy. They do things for other people all day long. So, yeah, if everyone could do something that do something that makes them happy. 
take a walk outside <laughs> without any distractions, music or phone or anything. Just go outside <laughs> and then see what kind of thoughts you have and notice how you feel. Uh, see if you feel any more grounded or if you have any more headspace. Start start small. Incredible. What's yours, Tom? <laughs> yeah. This is a hard question. <laughs> Listen, listen to my podcast. I mean, okay, okay. <laughs> right. Which episode is it? <laughs> um, no, I, I think so. It's interesting. I, I've not actually like ever. Th- I've always thought about asking other people. One thing, I, I think it's about being still and really just being able to be with yourself. Um, so I, I think just having having half an hour of mindful time to be with yourself and just accept whatever is and that can be with meditation that could be a walk in the forest that could be going out on your bike but not doing it with any distractions um just being with your mind and whatever comes up not judging it um just that allowing whatever comes through and almost just like welcoming it in and just saying like you know this is what is going on right now i think that's my that's my current answer, but I wish I could give people 10 things, to be honest. It's hard to pick yeah, one. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that answer a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to do that today. Oh, lovely. There you go. I've shared a bit of inspiration with you guys. Um, amazing. Uh, well, yeah, thank you so much, both Alex and Isaac, for, for joining the, the Pedal for Parks project. Uh, the, the, the adventure was, yeah, really amazing to see on the film, and I'd implore everybody to go. I think uh, I, I paid... Um, I think it was the Kendall Film Festival website and you can watch it through there. Um, so I'd recommend, every, I'll put, try and put a link in the description because it's a really wicked film and a great window into your work. Um, and yeah, I just want to thank you again for, yeah, your, I, I, you know, it's a, a mixture of like, like bravery and ambition and all the things that you poured into this and a lot of heart in terms of the intention of just trying to create something positive in a, a very challenging time. So yeah, thank you to you both. 